Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, Koshi here. Before we get into this episode of The Call, I've got a favor to ask. The bigger the Ausbiz audience the more we can invest in great content and keep providing quality investment ideas to you for free. If you could just take a minute of your time to leave a review of the call in the Apple Podcast app, it'll help keep our tribe growing. And of course, don't forget to catch up with all the best interviews each day at osbiz.com.au. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the call. G'day everyone, welcome to the Wednesday edition of The Call. 10 stocks, 60 minutes, we put them to, to, to two panellists, expert panellists for their adjudication and it's always incredibly informative, a lot of fun as well. We've got a lot to get through to today and, uh, and also uh, two terrific experts joining us. Always have a lot to say, which I love. Uh, Michael Wayne from uh, Medallion Group, Medallion Financial. Michael, good to see you. Thanks for having me again, Koshi. Looking forward to a good show. Yeah, yeah. Always love having you on, um, along with Andrew Page, your uh, usual sparring partner from Strawman. Uh, Andrew, how are things going? How's the, the Strawman Club going? Yeah, uh, g'day guys. Uh, yeah, going well. We've had a, a pretty busy uh, reporting season, just trying to sort of digest a lot of that uh, in, in the following weeks. But yeah, things are going well. Yeah, for those who haven't been on, on Straw Man, it's, it's worth a look, but it's like an investment club and it's sort of all of the members rate the different stocks, if you like, in terms of popularity. After earnings season, I've been wanting to ask you this for, for a little while. Have you seen uh, much of a change in in the rankings on straw man we have but the, part of that is due to we, we made a transition to a to a private club um and so there's been a reordering a little bit of a reordering in the rankings just due to because we're only sort of looking at our at our paid um right. our members at this point in time that being said we have seen a little bit of a, an adjustment um uh as well so you know, things like uh, Pointera doing very well for us, very highly ranked in virus suites also uh, way up there as well. So it tends to be a bit of a bias towards small cap and, and probably it's fair to say uh, tech and a, a growth bent as well. Um, but yeah, so far so good. We're off to a pretty strong start. Yeah, excellent, excellent. All right, let's get into some stocks now. I choose the stock of the day. And if you don't need a reminder about lithium and its role in our future, you only need to look at Pilbara Minerals share price today. It is on a tear after the company reported strong bids and participation um, at its lithium spodumene concentrate digital auction. Uh, this is where they, they put their products uh, online up for grabs. Um, it has been Michael Wayne from Medallion, a sensational performer, hasn't it? What does this auction tell you about the stock and does it um, increase its investment potential? 
Look, it just tells you, I think, that whatever this company is extracting from the ground is highly sought after uh, in these in this environment that we live in uh, at the moment. Basically, um, it's a trading and sales platform that the company's set up uh, probably six months ago now. They had their first auction about three months ago, uh, and they had bids ranging from about $700 a dry metric ton all the way up to $1,250 a dry metric ton. That was three months ago, as I touched upon. The most recent raising or the most recent sales um, was selling at above sort of two thousand dollars a metric ton. So, demand is very, very high for this commodity at the moment. Lithium prices have been doing very, very well, and Pilbara Minerals has been the best performer across the board in that space. Um, we've had clients in Galaxy before it was acquired or merged with Oricobre, um, but Pilbara has probably been the, the best of the bunch. But by and large, uh, we expect that long-term thematic to continue to play out. In the short term, there seems to be very, very strong demand, particularly from companies in China who are basically mopping up these shipments before it reaches any open market. So good place to be if you're Pilbara. They're in a very good sweet spot at the moment. But as always with these commodities, you've got to keep an eye on those underlying commodity prices because as we've seen with iron ore in the last few weeks, things can take a turn for the worse pretty quickly. But at this stage, uh, the future's looking pretty optimistic and pretty bright. Would you be buying at these levels? Um, oh, it's difficult. Uh, we haven't been buying for clients in, in recent months. Uh, as I touched upon, we do own Oricobre through Galaxy positions that we purchased probably 12, 18 months ago. Um, at this point, we're probably a little bit cautious. We're holders, but we're not out-and-out out buyers. On any significant pullback, we'll definitely have a look at it, though. Right. Okay. So it would be a hold if you're in it. Hold. But just two weeks a year if it's, uh, um, um, if it's, uh, if it's new investment money. Um, Andrew, it's a pretty nifty initiative, wasn't it, of these guys? They've actually put on an online shop. <laughs> um for their products and saying, okay, we will try and um, uh, command the pricing on a spot basis. Now, that mm. works well when things are going up uh, and down. It can do it pretty short term rather than long term contracts. So it's, it's a bit of a, um, um, uh, a really inventive initiative. Yeah, it is. And it, it seems to be working really, really well uh, so far, as, as Michael was alluding to. So this is, Pilbara has been, you know, trying to develop, it's got this, uh, I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly, Pilgangura project over in WA. So like any big project, it's, it's cost millions and millions and millions. Um, but they they seem to have got a really good asset there. In recent years, the, the sales from that have just been accelerating super, super fast, which is really great, as Michael pointed out, too. We've had some supportive pricing recently, which is really good. The company's also come out not too long ago and upgraded uh, the, the resource estimate of that mine. I think it was a 30, 40%, actually 30, 40% increase Wow. In their in their resource known resources there as well, so things are really just sort of lining up for these guys. One of the concerns I often talk about whenever miners come out is this supply demand um, thematic, and you you can have a situation where demand increases very rapidly in the short term. That can have a great impact uh, on prices. 
but then there is a supply side response. What's interesting about lithium at the moment is that I saw a report, I think it was from a quarry not too long ago, saying that even when you factor in a lot of the new supply that may come on, there's still going to be a bit of a demand supply imbalance there as well, which is just very supportive of prices. And whenever that situation is in play, these guys are just going to, to mint it. So um, look, at this point in time, they're still not making a profit, but um, in terms of their sales, they're on a price to sales of 40 for a miner. That seems uh, exceptionally high. Although what's what you need to note here is that they look as though they just passed this break even point. So looking at some of the consensus guidance I saw this morning, they're calling for about an eight cent per share uh, profit. Uh, in the next couple of years. So that puts them on a P on today's prices of about 31, which doesn't seem too onerous. So it's a very interesting spot. Um, good quality assets, good thematic. Uh, as Michael said, you've got to watch those commodity prices, probably a little bit on the XE side at this point in time. But yeah, credit where it's due. Pilbara's done a great job. Okay. So uh, you'd be on a hold as well? Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, but... Um... Gee, those lithium producers are having a field day at the moment. Long may it last for them. Um, all right, let's get into the stocks that you want the, uh, the panel to take a look at. Uh, Oliver wants a view on Evolve Education. They're in the uh, child care, um, early childhood education business. 115 child care centres throughout New Zealand, 20 here in Australia. So mainly uh, New Zealand oriented with this, but... Uh, hoping to uh, expand further into Australia in the near term. Andrew, uh, uh, I don't think we've looked at Evolve Education here on the call before. So um, what do you think of it? Yeah, it wasn't familiar to me, um, but you're right. Uh, so very strong New Zealand presence, trying to expand their presence here in Australia. I think they bought about 10 uh, centres recently, just in the first half uh, of this year. Um, but look, obviously, it's been very tough for them, very much impacted uh, by covid uh, in fact, we're seeing uh, just in recent years, revenues down about 80% since uh, 2018. So certainly doing it pretty tough. Um, and they've withdrawn guidance for the current year just because of all of the, the uncertainty. So um, they are, ex so, so you have to sort of look through uh, all of that, of course. And the company's basically sort of said, look, we're expecting an EBITDA, an operating profit before depreciation, amortization, interest and tax, of around 24 million in FY22, assuming that COVID's largely sort of uh, behind us at that stage. Um, it's still about a third less um, than last year. But when you look at the share price, shares are only on about five times that at present. So it is ostensibly cheap. That being said, um, I am naturally cautious of this sector. Uh, you don't there's just not a great track record, as, as many market participants would know. Of course, we had a ABC Learning uh, not too long ago. G8 Education has really failed to capitalize um, on on the opportunity here as well. So it, it's it's a tough business. It's one where occupancy matters above all else. You've got this sort of reasonably high fixed cost basis. And, you know, when you've got a nice full childcare centre, it's actually quite profitable. But below a certain level of occupancy, it can be very, very, very tough. Uh, and hence hence why they've they've been doing it pretty tough uh, throughout, uh, throughout COVID. Um, and it's also a business where there's not much organic growth in an individual childcare centre. Yes, you can try and get those occupancy levels up. And yes, you can put fee increases through, but the real growth engine here does tend to be through acquisitions. And as I said, it's it's on one hand, it's a, it's an appealing model, 
Uh, you get a bit of an earnings arbitrage. You might buy a childcare center for four times EBITDA and then traditionally trade on a much higher multiple on the market. But it's just never it's never really been demonstrated consistently for for any one player. So it's an area that I'm that I am naturally sort of skeptical of. I wouldn't be buying it at, at, at this point in time. Um, just because yep. of all the uncertainty there and just because of the inherent unattractiveness, as I said, in, in the business mm. model. Okay. Michael? Yeah, I'd agree with uh, much of what Andrew just said. Um, GN Education is probably the obvious comparison here in Australia. Um, this particular business, um, it does seem to be doing pretty well pre-COVID, but obviously COVID has hit it pretty hard. Uh, the occupancy rates in New Zealand, which makes up, I think, about 111 of their childcare centres, is about 70%. So that's pretty low. Uh, you look at New South Wales, look at Victoria, where the other remaining 20 or so centres are, those occupancy rates are up above 85%. So they're doing it tough in New Zealand. And New Zealand hasn't really had the lockdowns that many of the states in Australia have had. Um, they have blamed the, the lack of international travel and, and the fact they can't get teachers um, and carers from overseas into the country. And just looking at New Zealand from a distance at the moment, they don't come across as the first country in the world which is going to open up their borders that quickly. So that might drag on this company for some time, those capacity constraints. Um, but then to all the points that Andrew mentioned, um, once you pick up a lot of that low-hanging fruit, you pay low multiples for those businesses, it becomes incrementally harder to find value in new purchases. Um, so you've got to be careful and monitor things like debt levels to make sure that they're getting the return on invested capital that they need to cover those debts. Um, so for, from my standpoint, although there definitely are synergies to be had um, and there are cost reductions to be had in things like support offices and, and just all around centre purchases, um, over time it's been shown that many of those scale benefits that you think would be there aren't there. The fact is governments have all sorts of regulations around how many staff members are required per headcount of child. Uh, etc. So it does become a little bit challenging to extract those benefits that you might think otherwise exist. So for that reason, it's a sell or a no-go from mine. Okay. All right. Uh, and next, talk, Josh wants a view on Newix. Um, Josh is saying it seems to have bottomed out after a volatile period and failing to deliver on its prospectus forecasts. Uh, Josh, that's understating it. If you uh, miss the thrill of riding roller coasters at Dreamworld during lockdown, uh, as a Newark shareholder, you would have got the uh, same <laughs> ad adrenaline rush uh, by holding stocks in um, shares in this stock, uh, down 68% uh, year to date after missing prospectus forecasts. They've got a legal case looming against their CEO. Um, to give you an idea, it was a bit of a stock market darling last year. The shares listed on the stock exchange in December after selling during the, the IPO at $5.31, got to $11.86, and um, now they're just under, under $3 because of uh, all those issues that's gone through. Um, Michael, has Newix bottomed, and would you be buying at this stage? Look, it's interesting because, as you point out, it's one of the, the better IPOs and, and more hyped IPOs in, in recent memory. Um, the underlying software appears to be quite good um, and, and well used around the world by all sorts of companies. Um, effectively, it enables businesses such as journalists, etc., or forensic accountants to go through reams and reams of, of paper um, and, and millions and millions of words to identify 
keywords or key phrases that they're looking for. So in some of the, the recent headlines around um, tax avoidance, this technology was used in filtering through one of those documentation. So the, the problem with this company is it came to market well hyped, performed very well off the bat, um, but then they failed to meet their guidance um, when it came to, to revenue growth. And that was the first little crack in the armor. Then obviously lots been made of the CEO, um, taking the, the company to court around options that he suspects should have been granted and, and weren't granted. There's also class actions uh, floating around um, regarding their reporting um, and whether or not the reporting was as accurate as it should have been or could have been. So these court cases are gonna play out for some time. There's potential that if this options case does fall in the favor of the ex-CEO, that he might be entitled to 250 million. So where does a company like Newix get $250 million from? That's a big, a big question mark around the company. Um, but putting the court cases aside, um, I don't necessarily think the fall in the share price um, is justified looking at the business uh, performance on its own because customer churn rates have come down. The, the company continues to grow uh, its new business acquisitions um, in terms of getting on new customers. Um, although they did miss forecast guidance, it wasn't a huge miss. So there potentially is for the, the thrill-seeking investor some value to be had here. But again, uh, there's a lot going on here and there's a lot of risks that could fall against you if you are an investor at this point. So although it might be tempting from a business standpoint, looking at the business in isolation, you have to factor in those other issues that are surrounding the company um, and I'll be steering clear of it for now for that okay. reason. Uh, Macquarie's still the biggest shareholder, is it? Yes, from, from my understanding, definitely. Right. Okay, so that gives you a bit of comfort um, and you sort of ne never get between Macquarie and a dollar. So they'd be... <laughs> They'd be working pretty hard to make sure it works, I suppose. So Absolutely. And I don't think they could jump off the, the ship at this point. They'd have to sort of oh, stick right. with it. Wouldn't oh, be a good okay. So they're locked in. Um, Andrew, what do you reckon? If you're a a bit of a vulture, would this would this be one? Uh, I, I agree with Michael. It's just, there's just way too much heat. It's, it's too simplistic to say where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, there's, there's plenty of sort of false positives that, that are out there in the market. But man, there's just so much going on here. Yeah, from all accounts, the software is fantastic. And, and there's, you can read through some of the metrics that they present there. And it's the kind of stuff you like to see. In fact, it's the kind of stuff that I really look for. I love software businesses. So really low customer churn, really high rates of recurring revenue, lots of subscription revenue coming in, uh, big market opportunity, uh, very strong product set, all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, aside, aside from all of those issues, you know, being rated by the AFP not that long ago and, and all the rest of it, there's no growth. Well, there's there's not the growth that you would expect. Um, no. So they just reported their results. And as Michael said, a bit of a miss, but it was like, even if you sort of go back a few years, you're sort of annualizing the top line growth here at around about 6%. Now, is that is is that the kind of level of growth that you want to see for a business that at one point in time was, was trading on a, a price to sales of something like 10 or 12? Um, even with this pullback, you're looking at a price to sales of five. So look, if, if if growth really comes through and a lot of these issues fall away, you're likely to do quite well uh, from this point in time. But uh, as I said, there's just so much uncertainty out there. It, for me, I'm the kind of investor that's happy to forego some of that potential 
but invest with with more with more certainty. Yep. So yes, when a lot of these issues, if a lot of these issues sort of clarify favorably, the share price will react pretty quickly, and you'll you'll have to buy it at a higher price. But you will be buying with with much higher certainty. Whereas at this point, perhaps things don't go as as well, and and perhaps things get a lot worse. And we've seen lots of examples of that where companies yep. have a few stumbles, there's a few issues hanging around them, and it just goes from bad to worse. So for me, it's it's a it's a hard pass. And, and also, once you lose the confidence of the investment markets, even though you turn around, there's still a lag uh, before they start trusting you again too, is that? Um, which we see time and time again, which you've got to keep yep. in, into account. All right, let's go uh, for something a bit more subdued now. Simeon wants to be on Bank of Queensland. So we go from Newix to Bank of Queensland. Um, keen on the experts' views from Simeon. Um, and not only on Bank of Queensland, but the financial sector in general. Management uh, decks are being cleared. Technology seems to be sound. Um, Andrew, what do you think of Bank of Queensland? Look, it's a, it's a very fine business. Uh, it's, it's hard to be too critical of them, but it's also... Whenever you uh, say, very... it seems a very fine business, you know a butt <laughs> is coming after it. There's a butt coming. I mean, you know, they, they, are, they are operating... They're a very mature business in a very mature market, um, competing with very, very big entrenched players, with some of them arguably the big four with, with some structural advantages uh, there as well. Um, there's just there's not much growth there. I mean, dividend has been falling uh, even sort of pre-COVID as well. In FY19, it was the the dividend was about the same as it was in in FY14. So, yeah, very uh, so far reliable sort of cash flows and a good sort of dividend that's coming through there. But but there is no growth. So. You know, if things sort of continue ahead at pace, you and you know, you, you could probably get a, a reasonably decent yield, about five percent or so. Throw in some franken credits; it's not bad. But without much growth, that's kind of the return you're sort of looking at, sort of that upper single digits, which for a lot of people, particularly income focused people, might be perfectly adequate. Um, they've also got some interesting um, initiatives. You know, their relationship with Virgin Money. They recently acquired ME Bank. Or me bank um, and uh, yeah there's definitely some opportunity there but one of the things that I keep coming back to again and again with the banks is that I just feel as though it's a bit of a heads I win a little bit tails I potentially lose a lot in other words there's a real asymmetric return profile here so Australia continues to uh, to do reasonably well everything stays okay with the housing market and as I said sort of an upper single digit type total shareholder return on average over, over the sort of medium to longer term but if there are any sort of wobbles there you know God forbid there's any sort of problems with the Australian property market there is a there is a lot of potential sort of downside and I know it's it's one of those sort of chicken little things that you can sort of um, uh, talk about and I have been talking about a lot for a long time it is not materialized but I'm just very cognizant of that and so when it's a when it's a situation where there's that that asymmetry is there and a good a good outcome is an okay but not spectacular return I just feel as though there's better opportunities elsewhere so it's 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 a pass for me yep Michael um, we were pretty optimistic on the banking sector more opportunistically uh, middle of last year and we've been selling most of our bank shares for clients for those that are open to the idea um, in recent months, just because we think that the run and the rally that we've seen in bank shares are unlikely to be replicated over the next sort of 6, 12, 18 months or so. So from our standpoint, the medium longer term outlook isn't that crash hot. Um, in saying that, look at, looking at Bank of Queensland uh, in particular, 
Uh, they've recently completed the acquisition of MeBank, which was, a, I think, a very good acquisition on their behalf. Um, that's going to be EPS accretive, or it looks like being EPS accretive for them. The fact is MeBank is all basically funded from term deposits. So once you incorporate that into a bigger regional bank, um, that allows them to provide more competitive rates, but also boost up some of those net interest margins. So I think that was very well done for them. Uh, as Andrew touched upon, their technology seems to be quite good. Um, and interestingly, in the last sort of six, 12 months or so, the regional banks, you know, Bendigo Bank, Bank of Queensland, have been winning market share away from some of the larger banks. And that can be seen as a good thing because in the short term, it likely boosts up their profitability relative to the big four banks. But from the long term standpoint, I'm not sure if that's such a good thing. Often it's better to be counter cyclical. So you look to win market share when times are tough. That way you're in a pretty good position for when you get the big upswing in housing prices, for instance. Whereas if you're winning market share now, you're coming in at a pretty high point in the, the housing cycle, you would have to think. So um, I'm, I'm a little bit torn. In the short term, it might do okay. For medium, longer term perspective, um, we prefer other businesses. Bank of Queensland being mainly geographically exposed to Queensland in a pretty favourable position whereby they're not in lockdowns while the rest of the country is. Um, and they've got a big exposure to mortgages, uh, less so to things like business loans and personal loans. So um, it's not a bad opportunity, but we just feel as though that there are better sectors, better businesses in the market to be looking at. Okay. All right. We had a bank, uh, what was it, Westpac, the, uh, the other day with uh, Mathan and Gaurav, and they were saying, you know, banks are really fully priced from a macro view at the moment, if you, if you want one out of cycle, it's better to go for the insurance companies, which are, are so ugly that they're actually looking fairly attractive at the moment. But uh, that's just what they said on Monday. Um, our next one um, from Phil uh, Michael is V-Moto, um, the, uh, the scooter manufacturer. Um, Phil says the share price has been a dead weight for the past six months for no good reason, but the recent report has given it a bit of a boost. It's a global scooter manufacturer, mainly manufacturing in China. Hasn't been on the call, I reckon, for about a year um, that it's come up. I'd, I'd never heard of it before then. They do petrol scooters and uh, four-wheel all-terrain vehicles. Um, most recent um, financial result to the end of June uh, profit up 119% to $4 million. Their cash flow positive got $17 million in the bank. Interesting business, Michael. Yeah, I think I was probably on the show last time it came up uh, 12 months ago. Uh, so I have to go back and have a look at my notes, see what I said. It's an interesting business because on the face of it, it seems to be doing quite well, looking at the, the metrics and the balance sheet, etc. Effectively, they sold close to 8,000 uh, scooters last year. And these are the types of scooters that you often see uh, delivery drivers cruising around on, uh, where they're sort of half electrified, half um, manual, if you like. They've also got some more uh, scooter-type um, products as well. But um, the problem I have with it, and it does concern me a little bit, this is a Chinese-based company uh, listing on the ASX. And the ASX isn't exactly well known for its automotive company. So that does raise a little bit of a red flag. Maybe I'm completely off the mark with that and I'm happy to be proven wrong. But it does at least put up the antennas for me. But again, as I mentioned, looking at the, the key metrics, they seem to be growing quite well. The order book looks pretty plump and juicy um, for the next 12 months. However, the share price for some 
reason or another hasn't been reflecting that. So for mine, it's a, a steer clear. If you hold it, I mean, you could continue to hold it because the business itself seems to be doing okay, but it's not the type of investment mm. for me, unfortunately. Okay, interesting. Andrew? Yeah, look, as a as a sector, uh, vehicle manufacturing is not great. Uh, it doesn't have a, a good history of, of profitability. It's a highly competitive uh, sort of market, very cyclical market, very much based on consumer discretionary spending. But credit where it's due. I mean, a lot of the metrics that the company is spitting out, as as Phil said, is actually really attractive. And I would remark on his comment there that, you know, the shares have been doing nothing while while the company continues to do well. I mean, isn't that... Isn't that the best scenario of, of all possible outcomes for long-term investors? Because it's kind of what you want to see, right? Like it's <clears throat> the business, nothing um, ostensibly wrong with it, but the market, for whatever reason, um, sees, it, sees it as less attractive. You get to buy the same thing on, on sale. So I wouldn't complain about that. Um, and the reason that it probably hasn't come up on the call is because people tend to pay attention to stocks that are shooting higher, i.e. getting more and more expensive and less and less value. Um, yep. so, so I think we do have to invert our thinking a little bit with, with these kinds of things. And that's really a characteristic of, of all the great investors of being able to ignore the consensus and say, well, actually, this is this is cheap. Hopefully it goes down even further. Um, but look, the, the, the thing that I think is interesting about this business, they do the business to consumer and so you can go and buy yourself an electric scooter but there's a lot of business to business kind of stuff here as well so they've got relationships i think with six or seven different ride sharing operators ah, right. so it's kind of those things where you can um get your smartphone out and hire an electric scooter yep. and whiz around town um for, for a little bit they also have a lot of relationships with food delivery companies uh, parcel delivery companies uh as well um and there's just some attractive uh, economics uh, around uh, around these vehicles so they reckon that they're outselling their nearest competitor there's really good traction there there's a lot of interesting things to sort of say for it so the consensus forecast having a look at that it's actually calling for a doubling of per share earnings by fy23 and you're paying a price earnings ratio of 27 for that which doesn't seem that expensive at the current price so Notwithstanding some of those those concerns and just the general um, unappealing in general nature of this industry, it does look reasonably interesting. It's it's a bit outside of my wheelhouse, and I need to do a lot more research on it. So I, I'd probably sort of say hold at this point in time. But I can see why people like it. It's actually ranked reasonably well on Strawman, and the, the average price target there is actually about I want to say about forty percent higher. Than the current wow. market price so the, the people who, who okay. see the long-term value feel as though it's pretty cheap but it's it's not one for me all right there you go phil um what's this space um now stephen wants a view on adairs and he's called out uh, one andrew page on this as well uh trying a bit of shade i love that stephen uh i know andrew page is a retail bear and skeptic <laughs> that could be a oh. bit unfair uh <laughs> i want to ask him and, uh, and Michael's views on Adairs seems like an old world retail business which trades on a cheap multiple, but has grown sales consistently over the years and has had rapid growth on its on, in its online segments. Andrew Page, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, I should I should probably clarify a bit of a standpoint here. Yeah, you know, um, Stephen's right. It's, re retail is something I'm, as a general rule, 
cautious of. Why is that? Well, it's a very competitive industry, typically has pretty low margins, very dependent on consumer discretionary spending and therefore highly cyclical businesses. So it's a tough space. But when it's done well, it's phenomenal. I mean, you know, look at look at JB Hi-Fi, look at Temple and Webster. There, there's some really great exceptions to the rule out there. So it's ne- certainly not a case of, of never, never say never. Um, and Adairs are just knocking it out of the puck. They have done so well for a for a, a retailer does bed linen and homewares and this kind of stuff. They've just done really, really nicely here. They've nearly doubled their sales in the last five years. Um, per share earnings up almost 150% at the same time. And and by the way, all the while doing that by managing their capital extremely well. There's been no capital raisings or anything like that. Um, like a lot of retailers, um, uh, the, the shift to online has been a really noticeable move here. And these guys have done a lot of work with this sort of omni-channel kind of uh, structure that they're going with here. So they're pretty well positioned for it. They've now got over a third of their sales uh, are, are online. They've also got this really cool um, membership model, paid membership model, gives you free delivery and a few other benefits. People who belong to the Linen uh, the linen Lover cl- uh, membership oh, club, yeah. uh, there's almost a million of them and they account for about 80% of, of sales. Um, and yeah, despite all of this traction and despite all of this, the, the price to earnings ratio is 10. So the first thing that I assumed here when looking at something like that was well, maybe they got a bit of a boost with COVID, a lot of people at home, unable to spend their money elsewhere. They've gone and refreshed uh, the, the house with, with a bunch of homewares and the rest of it. And maybe people expect that to slow down a little bit. And I think there is some truth to that. But sort of looking beyond sort of the next year or so, I think that they've done. I think that they've they're really well positioned, actually. And I'm going to agree with Stephen here. I, I think they actually look pretty cheap. They're, they're vertically integrated, right? So they they control all of their product. Um, you can't get uh, the stuff at Adairs. Is you can only sort of get it at Adairs, and that allows for far higher margins than what you typically get. The operating margin, the EBIT margin for this business is 20%. So it just completely puts light on what I was saying before with retailers typically having low margins. Um, so look, I, I actually think it, it it ranks pretty well on Strawman. I think comparatively next to similar retailers or retailers experiencing similar kind of growth and have made similar investments in in um, in their growth, I actually think it looks really interesting. So I don't own, and I would need to do more research, but I would I would put it as a, a cautious buy, perhaps just based on 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 the the look that I've that I've had this morning. I think it's I think it's it's interesting. Yeah, a, a million customers, that's a really healthy tribe, isn't it? That uh, account for 80% of your sales, that is uh, quintessential, the, the business model these days, Michael, isn't it? Is, uh, is building a tribe, connecting with them digitally and, and owning them. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I've obviously heard of Adairs, but I've sort of cast it aside because of my inherent biases against these sort of simple retailers, and, and I, I don't mean to be to be rude uh, in saying that, but it's not the sort of exciting companies that you normally think would do well over a long period of time. But in this instance, looking at the numbers, the company's done an incredible job, really. Um, and looking at its peers, it's very, very cheap relative to those peers. So if you are looking for a retailer with a, a large online presence, this is certainly one that's worth looking into uh, from my standpoint. Um, Andrew sort of talked through many of the, the strong strong numbers that they've got, uh, 20% EBIT margins, 66% gross margins. 
they're as good as many tech businesses out there. Um, so there's definitely a lot to like. Their same store sales growth has been very strong despite uh, the impacts of COVID. Um, I still do fear, and this might be lazy analysis, that what happens when we do emerge from these lockdowns, um, people start traveling again, spending money on other things, will a company like this get left behind to some extent? Um, it's also worth keeping an eye on their margins going forward. Management did flag rising costs amongst some of their suppliers, um, also increased in, in freight charges, et cetera, as well has been a bit of an impact on the company and they expect those to continue to remain a little bit of a headwind. But by and large, um, they've got great customer loyalty and they've got very good margins. They're generating almost 50% of their sales in terms of volume is coming online. People are still spending bigger amounts on each basket size in store, but over time that is shifting and their online uh, presence and their online contribution is becoming greater and greater, which will continue to help their margins, you would think, over time. So from mine, I'm happy to give it a, a tentative buy, uh, but in saying that I don't own it and, and none of our clients own it, but it's okay. definitely one to do a bit more All work right. on. There you go, Stephen. You've, you've flushed... The biases out of Andrew Page. There you go. And supported <laughs> by Michael Wade. All right. Uh, let's recap our first five stocks, including our stock of the day, Pilbara Minerals, hold from both. Um, Evolve Education, no. Newick's a no. Bank of Queensland, no. Uh, Vmoto, hold if you've got it. Um, certainly, Andrew's put it on his watch list. And a dares a yes from both of them. Uh, here at the call, we've been tracking our own fantasy portfolio thanks to our partner NabTrade. Uh, any stocks like Adairs um, that get two thumbs up from our experts goes into the calls portfolio. Uh, down about half a percent for the week, up over a one percent for the month and since the first of July this year, up almost five percent since inception since the first of July 2020. Uh, it's up almost 42%. Some of the uh, stocks recently added. Uh, Cluey, PWR Holdings, Resimac, Terra Royalties and PointsBet. Some of the stocks removed. Medical Developments, Rio Tinto, Rays and Energy One. Uh, you can see all the stocks in the calls portfolio at osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. All right, uh, next stock, Michael. Will wants a view on IDT Australia. Uh, Will says, off the back of recent news, it's competing with CSL for the manufacturing of mRNA vaccine facilities here in Melbourne. Would like to know if the share price is starting to price in future contracts. Interesting business because it is in vaccine development. It's sort of a mini CSL, isn't it, Michael? And uh, the Australian government has sort of put it on hold or put it in reserve to start producing vaccines. What do you think of uh, IDT? Yeah, look, it's come out of the left field, I suppose, um, in getting this contract with the government. But the caveat, I suppose, in this situation and something investors need to be conscious and, and cautious of is that there's an exclusivity period whereby they can only produce and sell to the Australian government when the Australian government calls upon them to do so. So there's no guarantee um, that if this round of vaccinations is effective and efficient, that down the track, the government's going to need uh, this particular business to produce the mRNA uh, um, vaccine. So from my standpoint, it's a binary type of outcome. Yes, if COVID does blow up again and we require more and more vaccines, this company will do very well off that environment. But if things aren't as bad 
um, as that, then something like IDT Australia will probably struggle. So a lot of positivity is probably embedded in the price. Uh, there's a lot of optimism probably in the price. And for that reason, I'll be careful and cautious and probably sell uh, with a view to locking in those profits. Okay. Uh, Andrew? Yeah, so I wasn't familiar with it. I spent a bit of time looking at it. It's one of those businesses that the more you sort of dig into, the more questions you've got. I'm not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just it just I just sort of preface my comments <laughs> with that because there's the devil is is always in the detail. The interesting thing that caught my eye is that as a country, we're extraordinarily dependent on overseas manufacturers of pharmaceutical products. About ninety percent of those things are imported, so there's probably a uh, uh, a very uh, sound strategic reason for Australia to have more of its uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing based onshore. We know uh, how valuable that potential well, could have been uh, had we had uh, mRNA vaccine manufacturing facilities in place when COVID had hit. So look, the, the, the it has helped shine a spotlight on that. Um, as Michael said, though, how does this all sort of play out? Does CSL end up winning more of the manufacturing contracts here? Is it IDT? What are the financials like, even if they do win? I'm with the, I Maybe it's out there. I couldn't find it in the brief look that I had as, as to what the potential revenue for this is. Um, and so it's very tricky. You look at the longer term history of the business, been around for ages, actually, but they haven't made a profit since 2009. They returned, sorry, they returned to profitability last year, but there was a long, cold, dark winter for these guys just losing uh, money. Um, looks like they've gotten into uh, medicinal cannabis manufacturing uh, as well. Uh, maybe that will play out for them, but just a lot of a lot of questions. And for a business that's on a price earnings multiple of sixty, it does seem pretty expensive. That might be a bit of a a, a furphy though. We we know that PE ratios are, are very simplistic, uh, a nice heuristic, but potentially with you know uh, maybe if you're looking at uh, you know a, a strong uplift in profit, that actually could be very cheap. So it's just it's it's too in the too hard basket for me at this stage. So certainly not in good conscience could I recommend a buy. Okay. All right, um, Andrew Simon wants a view on AMA Group. Um, they're the automotive parts and, and smash repair, basically a roll-up, isn't it, of smash repair companies. Uh, Simon says um, they're raising capital, which they are, um, raising about sort of $53 million uh, after a share price decline as COVID-19 impacted the business. Fewer cars on the road, fewer repairs, now reopening around the quarter. Uh, is it worth getting into the capital raise? Oh, geez, I don't know. I, I, I think one, one, as a general comment, I think a lot of investors look at, and I'm not saying this um, in regard to Simon, just as a general comment, you sort of see a company is raising money, they offer a discount, of course, on the on the market price to make it compelling. But often when you look at the kind of discounts that are on offer here, I mean, if is that enough to sort of um, warrant an investment? Uh, I don't know. If, if if you wouldn't buy it now, but at a 10% discount, it's, it's exceptional value. I, for me, I think there's a bit of fuzzy sort of thinking in there. Um, the other thing you've got to factor in here, of course, is the, the dilution angle here as well. So there... As I read it, 270 million new shares will come onto the register following wow. this capital raise. That's where it represents more than a third of the current shares outstanding. So that's going to be a very, very big uh, dilutive factor for them. Uh, it's a business that 
if I'm being frank, it looks to me as though they've had a pretty poor history with with some of their acquisitions. The Capital Smart acquisition, they just wrote that down by $90 million. Last year, there was a $47 million impairment against the uh, 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 another acquisition as well. So it's sort of... You know, the company loves to sort of call these things, oh, they're non-cash uh, write-downs. It's like, well, they're real. It just basically means you overpaid for it and based on, on some of your assumptions. So that's that's a little bit of a concern. Um, yes, uh, and the the, the roll-up uh, angle, again, as we sort of spoke about in terms of childcare centres, it does, it does have a certain appeal, but it's very, very rarely done successfully. So I'd be a little bit wary of, of that. Um, just having a quick squeeze through some of the media, media articles out there as well, there seem to be talk about, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire and, and potential red flags here. The chief executive... Uh, is is being sort of questioned. He got a $165,000 short-term bonus recently off a more than a half million dollar pay package despite all the difficulties that the business has been facing. That's probably got a, you know, stick, stick in shareholders crawl there a little bit as well. There's a litigation there as well. They're trying to sue their, their former chief executive. He's trying to counter sue them as well. Uh, they've got a, something like 80% of their revenues are, are sourced through insurers as well. Insurers right. play hardball as well. So that's, yeah. that's another thing to, to be concerned about. And, and something like, what was it, $3 million in related party transactions with directors in FY21. So it's sort of, I don't know. It's, it, ju it just seems like there's, there's, there's a few things there that would, would make me keep my distance. Okay. Michael? Um, just to, to be brief, basically, um, this company is one that's experiencing declining margins, declining return on equity. Gearing had been increasing over sort of a 10-year period gradually. Obviously, COVID's been a challenging environment because no one's been driving around and, and the volumes have, have taken a, a little bit of a fall when it comes to repairs. But there's also pressure on pricing. Uh, there's been increased costs associated with the technologies um, involved with new vehicles. So this company has been doing it a little bit tough. And I think I flagged with this company when I was asked about it last time uh, on this program, that the balance sheet was looking very messy, hence why they've now had to go out and conduct this capital raising. And ideally you wanna be raising capital when the share price is doing well um, and, and the company's valuation is expensive, rather than sort of a, a last resort capital raising when you're forced to offer a large discount to entice people to take up that raising. So for that reason, um, there's a few things going on and it's a sell from mine. Okay. All right. Our next stock that uh, Adrian wants a, a view on, Michael, is uh, again, another recent listing only in uh, December last year, uh, Mass Group, um, an Australian construction, basically civil engineering uh, uh, business, um, focusing on infrastructure, mining and other assets like that. What do you think of Mass Group? Look, it seems to be an interesting new listing. The company's been around for a lot longer um, than the recent listing date. Um, effectively, their major, there's, there's many different uh, divisions to this company. Uh, the main one is basically leasing out construction equipment and machinery to companies for large construction projects, whether they be a new highway or a new mine or just any construction in general. So. They operate, I think, with 850 employees, over 400 machines. Um, the business is garnering some interest from some well-known fund managers, such as WAM Research, for instance, has been one of the, the early investors in this company. So they continue to do quite well. There's also a property development arm to the company, believe it or not, so they are quite vertically 
integrated in that sense. Um, and the property arm's actually been the best performing division, although it's not the biggest division in terms of revenue generated, the margins are the highest. Uh, you'd have to think that over time that the property side of the business probably won't continue to do as well when the conditions aren't as favorable. But to date, they seem to be progressing um, quite nicely. Um, earnings continue to grow quite well. So from, from our standpoint, it's one to keep an eye on. It's a hold. It's not a buy because I haven't done enough work and haven't done enough research on it. But it okay. seems like an interesting company in the construction space. Andrew? Yeah, really interesting business. The, the founder, Wes Mars, is just a, a really impressive person in his 20s. I think he started the business with a bobcat and a tip truck back in 2002. Uh, now, as Michael said, 400 different machines and 850 employees. So, you know, I always always find it very uh, attractive when you have someone who's um, still on board, still a significant shareholder, and obvious uh, demonstrable skill in, in growing a business exceptionally well over that period of time. Um, yeah, the move into property was a bit of an odd one um, for mine, but as Michael said, that seems to have been paying off uh, early on. The price earnings multiple, um, just to use that nice easy heuristic, is at about 37 uh, at this this point in time. So this is a business that just increased its revenue by 26% and its net profit a little bit less than that, 24%, I want to say, I think, uh, recently as well. Um, so you know, and they've and they've they look as though they've got a bit of um, a bit of a, a tailwind behind them in terms of the construction space. One thing you do need to be aware of with these businesses, again, it's all about utilization. Here, all those vehicles sitting in a in a parking lot somewhere doesn't do them any favors. So when construction does slow, these are the kind of businesses that sort of get a leverage. That, you know, the, the the downturn is compounded to some degree. Mm -hmm. But while ever conditions are favorable, it's it looks as though it's pretty well placed. Uh, they said something about their product volumes are expected to double in the coming year. So it looks pretty interesting. I, I, I would need to do more work as well. So I'll go with Michael and, and go with a hold. Okay. All right, Colleen, uh, Andrew wants a view on Toys R Us, the, uh, the big um, toy store group, um, which really revolutionized the toy industry years ago, didn't it? Sort of the, the, back in the, the late 90s. And uh, then the Australian operation got into trouble. It was sort of like a disruptor that didn't continue disrupting, was it? Yeah, yeah. So this big box retailing is applied to uh, toys and stuff, and I'm sure many viewers would have would have been into one of the shops. And yeah, um, yeah they're, they're they're really impressive. Uh, Except for the financial performance, which has yes. been absolutely woeful. Um, you know, we, they they were they used to be called Fantastic, so they've had a they've had a name change here. The U.S. business went into liquidation not that long ago. Here in Australia, they've been losing money since 2013 or so. Sales have been uh, on the decline, so it's 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 a turnaround play is is what it is. Uh, can they do it? They've recently relaunched their Babies Are Us. Uh, offering. Uh, they also own Hobby Warehouse as well. Um, arguably, if they do manage to, to restructure and turn around the business, it is cheap. But, you know, that old Warren Buffett saying is yep. uh, resonating in my ear. Turnarounds rarely turn. So I, I would want to see some evidence of that before I would be prepared to dip my toe in the water. Okay. Michael? Um, yeah, look, it's a well-known household name to, to many to many people, but the companies have been doing poorly. I think in the US it went into liquidation. In Australia, basically they've got a 42-year exclusive agreement uh, to operate Toys R Us and Babies R Us from the from the the, um, the US parent company. Um, 
effectively they've been in a sustained downtrend for some time. I'm not sure how many physical stores they've got these days, if any. Um, I think they might have wound a lot of them up and it's purely sort of online. Um, I remember the one out at Moore Park that closed some time ago. Um, so the whole thing for them is to really get the revenue up again, get the basket sizes up, the active customers up. And in the last sort of couple of years or so, that's definitely been happening. But they need a lot more of that. And the, the pickup is coming off a very low base. I mean, revenue is around $9 million um, these days. So there's still a long way to go to get back to the heady days that it, it once was at. So from my standpoint, it's a, a no-go, very, very high risk and, and very early stage turnaround. Okay. All right, and our final stock, uh, Will wants a view on Homeco Daily, the the Real Estate Investment Trust. Quite, uh, Michael, really entrepreneurial investment, real estate investment trust, these guys, isn't it? They're in that that big box retail area again. They're raising more money to to buy, um, what, some Dan Murphy's um, stores and some Hungry Jack's. And um, home co um, um, homeware centres uh, around the place—they're really active. Yeah, it's amazing success story. Really, it's emerged um, very quickly in a short space of time. I remember the the listing yeah. just like yesterday. I'm not sure exactly how long ago it was. It's probably two, three, four years ago now. It was well backed by a few um, <laughs> prominent families here in Australia. We purchased it pretty, um, we purchased not Home Co. Needs, but Home (laughs) HMC pretty early on. Sorry, I missed that, Koshi. Uh, Yeah, it seems a couple of years in a COVID mindset, uh, but this was listed in November. Yeah, I'm talking about um, the parent company, which was um, Home Co. HMC. (laughs) And then we've ended up with shares in HDN because this got spun off uh, from the parent company. And so basically now HomeCo or HMC is basically a property management type company collecting servicing fees, et cetera. And they've spun off a lot of the assets into separate vehicles. HDN was the first one. And they've recently completed another IPO, which did quite well off the bat, um, which has got to focus on the healthcare space. Um, So we do hold HDN, we do hold HMC. Um, HDN has some very good properties in it, um, very high occupancy. Cash collection is very good, long-term uh, whale on, on those on those rents. Um, and effectively, they went around and purchased a lot of the disused Masters stores after Masters was wound up by Woolworths. And they went in there and they put in a JB Hi-Fi and Anaconda. They anchored it with very high-quality tenants uh, and made the most of that space. So great premium uh, real estate investment trust for those that are interested in that sort of thing. So we have it as a, a hold. Um, not so much a buy because of the run-up recently, but it's definitely high quality. Yeah. Um, Andrew, it's been put to me that the management of Homegoer uh, are like, um, have a private equity mentality, but in in property and in REITs, which REITs can often be a bit boring, but uh, these guys are, are very tactical and very entrepreneurial. Yeah, it, it definitely seems uh, the case. Um, and they've got, as Michael said, so this weighted average lease expiry is, is, is uh, long term. So there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, visibility in their future earnings. The other thing that they do really well is, is I think it's the vast majority, 80 percent or something of their, their properties have locked in rent increases, mm-hmm. uh, either at a fixed rate or at CPI as well. Uh, which is also r- really nice. Um, this is all about, this is a business that is pretty boring, but it is one that you can do pretty well on. It's, you can buy some high quality assets at a good price. 
And uh, they, they tend to, I think the cap rate that they were talking about at the moment for the portfolio is around 5.6%, which seems really decent. Um, you're probably, the yield is a little bit deceptive. I think that they've the dividend's been pulled back a little bit by, by the looks of it, but based on what's more of a normalized picture, you're probably going to get something like a five, maybe even a 6% yield out of this, which mm. not bad in, yeah. in a low interest rate in, environment, but um yeah, the, the the what you need to do, of course, is add add some growth to that to sort of try and work out what your total return and and probably it's not hard to argue for something of three, four, five percent sort of or, or a, a growth longer term. So that probably adds up to something that's pretty reasonable. And if you like your, your distributions and your dividends, not yeah. bad. So um, yeah, I, I I would I would say a hold because it's just not my yep. bag. I think there are better opportunities, but certainly looks interesting. Fabulous hour. Love hanging out with you guys on the call. Michael Wayne from Adalian. Always great to catch up, mate. And Andrew Page from Strawman. Uh, terrific to see you. Thanks. Thanks, Toshi. They are just terrific, those two. Some, uh, as I said at the start, some great information. Let's uh, recap the uh, final five stocks. IDT, a no from Andrew. Uh, Michael's saying with the recent share price uh, increase, sell and take some profits. Uh, AMA Group, a no. Uh, Mass, a hold from both of them. Toys R Us, no. Um, Homeco Daily, a hold from both as well. So uh, from today's 10 stocks, uh, Adairs goes into the calls portfolio. If you have any stocks you want our expert panels to take a look at, uh, the email address to put them into the call at ausbiz.com.au or tweet us using the at TV handle. A reminder, you can see all the stocks in the Calls Fantasy portfolio, osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. That's it for the call for this edition on a Wednesday. Hope to catch up with you at midday tomorrow for another edition of the call.